Please be seated. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. While you're turning there, I'd like to also express my thanks for all of you who helped this week in various capacities with Vacation Bible School, uh, for the families that contributed not only their children, but uh, to some of the, that which was collected, um, the financial support for the mission school in, in Burundi, uh, the foods for fish of Williamsburg, and the whole uh, number of different items that are going to the Grove Christian Outreach. Uh, this was a, a tremendous blessing that we can participate in this week, and so we are very thankful. It's a special week in the church calendar every single year. Our passage this morning is John 16, the last part of John 16. Our reading will be verses 25 through 33. We are at the tail end of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples uh, both then and speaking to us now through his disciples and he's answering a question that uh, many of us, or the questions that many of us have um, on somewhat of a regular basis, at least for some of us, when it seems that the world isn't going the way that we think it ought to be. In fact, when sometimes it feels like the entire world is against us. His disciples were about to experience that. Jesus' concern not only for what they would experience, but realizing this is part of life, teaches and gives comfort and peace to those who belong to him. Our reading, beginning in verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you are, uh, the, now that we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, the word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we do come to you this hour praying that you would speak to us through this word. We can read the words plainly on the page. We can understand some and even much, but we cannot get the heart apart from the grace of your Holy Spirit being at work within us. I pray, Lord, that we would honor you and we would worship you in this way, that we would seek to understand what you would have us to know and that you would be at work by your spirit within us. May we give to you our minds as well as our hearts and a commitment to our lives. But we also are in need. So, Lord, speak and work that we may be blessed and become a blessing not only to you, 
but to the world around us. This is our prayer. This is our need. And yet we ask it knowing that this is your promise as well. We ask all things and hope for all things in Christ Jesus, our King. Amen. Earlier this week, I was flipping through channels, uh, what I thought was going to be a, a relative momentary break, and I ran across a movie I hadn't seen in a long time that is from a book that I haven't read in an even longer time. It was George Orwell's 1984. I thought that it would be, as I said, just flipping through the channels, taking a break, but I got engulfed in, in, the, in the movie uh, and thinking about the, the symbolism that is rampant throughout that film and throughout that book. For a variety of reasons, it seems to be coming up into our public discourse more and more. It seems to be cited in all sorts of newspaper articles and protests and everything else, whether appropriate or not. It's, it's one that is on our cultural consciousness. But I was struck as I recalled the story as a whole when the main character in this dystopian novel uh, named Winston Smith had somewhat of an epiphany. Smith had grown up more or less than most of his life in this world that was run by a totalitarian regime. And everyone around him was buying in. He himself had bought into it for most of his life. But as he was writing and as he was observing, his heart was beginning to change. And he finally came to the realization that the world that he was living in is not the way the world ought to be. He didn't have anything to compare it to. He just instinctively understood that it wasn't good. In fact, everybody was bland and was filled with hopelessness. He wasn't finding allies because it was for the good of the people or for their best interest, it seems, to just go along with the program because those who didn't uh, received the consequences of their disobedience, not only in their actions, but even if they had the audacity to speak their thoughts to another, they might be betrayed and turned in. But in his epiphany, Winston Smith came to recognize that while in many ways it would seem crazy to push back against this kind of a world, he began to recognize that even if he was a minority pushing back and had no hope of actually winning, that it wasn't really a crazy thing to push back against that which is evil, that which is wrong, and that which really offers no hope. And here's what he writes in the journal that he was keeping, which really makes up the, uh, much of, uh, of the book it's, it is a, and the movie as it's narrated. Smith's words are these, there was truth and there was untruth. And if you cling to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad. And he's come to this conclusion that resonates with all of us, that we recognize that in broken world, in injustice, in a time when things are not as they ought to be, there is untruth, which is really what reigns at times when things aren't the way they ought to be. And there is truth. And even if you feel very alone, even if you feel that you have no reasonable hope for success, you're not crazy to deny the untruth and to cling to the truth and to push back against that and all that is wrong. Now, 1984 is written as a book as a warning theoretical of what happens when evil is reigning in this world. 
But even though it offers a warning, and in one sense leaves us hungry for something else, the book itself, the message, offers no hope, no answer, only the hunger. But as I was thinking about the symbolism and the storyline and the passage that we were looking at this morning, I was reminded that Jesus himself entered into a world that is not as it should be. It was a world in which he would be betrayed. It is a world in which truth is not valued but untruth. It is a world that would force you into believing untruth if you want to get along and to experience very little resistance or opposition or some cases persecution. It's a world that is in tremendous need. And Jesus came as a minority, a minority of one, who claimed not only to know the truth and to have the truth, but to be the truth and to give that to all who would receive it. And the passage that we are looking at this morning, as I said a moment ago, is part of a, a larger portion from beginning in chapter 14 known as the Upper Room Discourse, which takes place on the night in which Jesus would be betrayed, the night before he would be crucified. Even as Jesus is teaching here, Judas has already left the building and is out making the final arrangements for, to, uh, to, um, to bring the to finalization, the betrayal that would lead to the arrest in the kangaroo, kangaroo court that would convict him and ultimately to the crucifixion only hours from what Jesus is speaking. If we peek ahead in the other Gospels and even with John, we recognize that Jesus had the weight of the world on his shoulders to the point later he would cry out, Father, if there's any other way other than what's about to happen, let's go with that plan instead of this one. Nevertheless, knowing that this has been the plan since before the foundations of the earth and this is the only way then I'll submit to your way. But even as he was praying that prayer, he was sweating blood. And I'm not sure all that was significant, but I'm not being a doctor, but I'm pretty sure that's not a good thing. You can get the details with uh, those who are medical professionals as to the cause of that. But my understanding is stress, incredible stress, is known to do that. And it's what Jesus was facing. And yet, even with all of that and the concern that he was approaching that would be evident in his pouring out blood through his pores. One of the primary concerns on Jesus' heart this night is that his disciples were confused and saddened and discouraged. And he wanted to bring clarity and encouragement and to offer them peace. That's what Jesus says here throughout, and particularly towards the end. He, he tells them this in, in verse 32, the hour is coming, um, and, um, well, excuse me, verse 31. Oh, it's in here. I lost my verse here. But uh, he says, I'm coming to, in order that you might have peace. And at the end, he's reminding them to, to take heart, because unlike the story of 1984, which offers a warning and points to the possibility of a world that is not right, Jesus has come to point to that which will make the world right again, and that is embodied in him.
And at the end of the passage, Jesus speaks and he gives the ultimate reason for our hope that itself is a summary of everything that he says here when he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's how we know that everything that is wrong will be made right in him. But from that verse and from verse 33 and the whole of it, what we recognize is God's way of bringing peace. It's the answer to the question that most of us ask at tumultuous times. It's the, it's the answer to the question, how can I find peace in this moment? Or in the bigger picture, how can I find peace in any circumstance? And throughout these verses, Jesus gives us three ingredients that are part of God's peace that he gives as a gift to those who belong to him. The first is truth. The second is love. And the third is grace. As we look at this passage, we begin with Jesus' statement of, of truth as, as part of it because it permeates everything that he's saying here. In fact, it's permeating everything that he says in this entire upper room discourse. If you remember when Jesus began after the supper and after he had, he had washed the disciples' feet and he, he starts in this discourse, he begins, and you can check in, you don't have to turn there now, but check in John 14, verse 1. Jesus begins his clarity and his encouragement and the giving of, of comfort and peace with these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. I mean, those words itself, he's, he's identifying with them. He's demonstrating that he knows what's going on in, in their minds and, and therefore in their hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. And it's a phrase that gets passed along, and it's a wonderful, comforting kind of phrase. But the difference between the way it seems to be widely used in a, a lot of places and what, the way Jesus uses it is because in a lot of times it's used as that statement alone. Let not your hearts be troubled, which is a great sentiment, but it doesn't give you any reason. I mean, there are things in life that are pressing against us. There's difficulties. There's hardships. We all experience them. Some of you experience them with a weight and a level to which we, the rest of us will pray for you, but we would certainly not want to have to endure. Although for most of us, the time will come when we'll have those troubles as well. But Jesus says this, not just let your hearts not be troubled, but he gives the hope. He gives the reason. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, there's a substantive, objective truth that we are to turn our attention to that is the promise, it is the hope of alleviating our discouragement, our fears. It is the reason for peace. It is understanding the truth about God and about Jesus Christ. Understanding the truth about God and about Jesus Christ is the beginning of peace. And Jesus speaks various truths as he's talking to the disciples throughout this discourse. And as we pick up in our text in verse 25, we see Jesus touching on the whole idea of truth and the truth that they and we need to understand. In verse 25, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. He's talking about the parables and the symbolism and some of the mysteries that he has been speaking. And he continues, and he says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. 
And I love the disciples' reaction, which we see in verses 29. Ah, now you're finally speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. And I can resonate with that, and I assume many people do, because I've had conversations with people sometimes saying, I just wish God would speak plainly and clearly so that I could understand all of these things. And yet Jesus says that there's a reason that he spoke as he did in part because by using parables and using uh, prophecy, not everybody is going to grasp and it separates or distinguishes those who God is, has graced, those who belong to him, because he grants understanding by the work of the Holy Spirit. I know for some that raises the question, why doesn't he just do that for everybody? And I don't know the answer to that. For some reason, and somehow, God in his glory is glorified in all of this. But it's very clear, Jesus, is, he does that. But more than that is because by teaching in parable and teaching in prophecy and teaching in what Jesus is calling here figures of speech, there is a depth of complexity that when we understand what he's teaching, there's still more that we can come to understand. The depth of the wisdom of God is revealed so that we can receive the message that we need, and yet there is more. We hunger for more, and we can be satisfied with more. And even as we hunger more, there is more there. But the disciples weren't like a lot of us, and they were, apparently they were sitting there for about three years and saying, okay, I think I got it, I think I got it. I would just wish he would speak more clearly. Apparently that was the way that they were. So if that's where you are, if that's the way you think every once in a while, you are clearly in good company because the ones that Jesus invested with, the ones who walked with him, the one who saw not just the words, but the body language and heard the intonations, they were feeling a lot like you. But Jesus says to them, the hour is coming. So it wasn't at that point in time, although they seem to think now they got it, even before the hour had come. He says the hour is coming, and now it has come. In other words, it was time for him to be betrayed and to be arrested. It, it, the time had come, although in one sense he hadn't been arrested yet, so they, they didn't fully understand as they thought they did at, at this moment. But when Jesus says the hour is coming when I'm going to speak plainly to you, Jesus is reminding them in one sense of what he has already said. When they asked to see the Father, he said, if, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, in the person of Jesus Christ, everything there is to know about God the Father is embodied. And when Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave, then we are able to see in Jesus everything we need to know about God the Father. And in that hour, when that time had come, the disciples' eyes would be opened. We have the benefit of seeing through lenses of history, seeing even before. But when we wonder what God is like, it is evident in the person of Jesus and most gloriously and vividly declared through the love of Jesus that drove him to the cross and the power of God that raised him from the dead for us and for our salvation. And Jesus is saying that's the truth and that's understanding that will give you peace regardless of your circumstances. Now the disciples responded in some other things in here when they said, look, now we, in verse 29, now we know you're speaking clearly and not figuratively in verse 30. Now we know that you are, that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. 
This is why we believe that you came from God. And what the disciples are reflecting there is, was a, I don't know how common, but it was a relatively commonly held belief among Jewish people at the time, is that someone who was able to know not only answers to the questions, but to anticipate the questions and then give the answers before somebody had even asked the question, that that itself would be a sign of divinity. And so the fact that Jesus is speaking to them and seems to be anticipating how they were feeling and the questions that they would have and telling them, I'm going to speak clearly and plainly to you, which apparently was something that they were longing for. The disciples took that as yet another sign and almost seemed to be declaring that that was the ultimate sign uh, that indicated that he had come from God. And it's in that belief that they would find peace. It's in the belief that Jesus is the one who, although being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of our form, and was willing to be obedient even to death, death on the cross, that the name of Jesus would be elevated, would be proclaimed, would be praised above every other name on heaven and on earth. And his disciples, now with that peace, think they have everything that they are needed. They do believe. Jesus doesn't really question whether they believe. He says, ah, now you believe. They demonstrated that there was belief even before that. They weren't sure exactly what they're going to believe. They still had no idea that what he meant, that he was going to go away, and particularly that he was going to, to be dying. And since they didn't have any idea of what he meant by doing that, they had no idea of the necessity of that. That would be something that they would come later as they were able to see. But one of the things that we see in this passage that Jesus is telling his disciples and that we need to hear as well is that our peace is not an absence of difficult circumstances in our lives. Because at the very end in verse 33, as he's speaking to his disciples who have now said, yeah, now we believe, he tells them this, I've said these things that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation but then take heart, here's the peace, that I've overcome the world. I think we need to say once again that to have peace with God is not an absence of difficulties in our circumstances. It's not an absence of pain in this life. Jesus was saying, everybody has them. He was saying to the disciples, you'll have your share. But peace is not dependent upon circumstance. Peace is dependent upon God who has come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, who has overcome the world and is telling his disciples so that they can have peace in any circumstance. Author Frederick Buechner has in one of his stories Jesus saying this to his people. Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. But don't be afraid. Because I am with you. 
and never, nothing can ever separate us. I am next to you. I am for you. I love you. See, this is the truth that Jesus had come to proclaim and to embody. And it is the truth that we, that peace hinges upon. We can have peace in the absence of hostilities and the absence of difficulties, in a sense. But the peace of God transcends our circumstances and enables us to have it regardless of what is going on. That's the first ingredient. The second ingredient that we see Jesus speaking of is love, the, the love of God, and he speaks to his disciples of that. We see it picking up in verse 26. Jesus foreshadowing, talking about the day in which they would understand he says this, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father. In other words, he's saying, you know, you're going to ask me stuff, and I'm not necessarily going to answer it. But he says, here's the reason. Verse 40, 27, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and, be, and believe that I came from God. That is a profound, profound statement. See, when Jesus says, you're going to ask me things, and I'm not necessarily going to be the one, you know, he, what he's saying to us is, as the one who is mediating through his death that they didn't yet understand, I've opened the door. You don't need to go around to ask God the Father anything. God the Father already loves you, which is the reason that he sent me in the first place. He already loves you, just you can ask him. And he gives us the conditions in one sense. There are conditions, there are circumstances that remind us and enable us to evaluate whether or not we are among those who God loves. But in another sense, it still is a reflection of a lack of condition. In other words, there's nothing that we need to merit. There's nothing that we can achieve. There's nothing that we can sacrifice and to give. But here's the reasons that the Father loves us. Because we've, we've loved Jesus. And we believe that Jesus came from God. See, it's nothing about our performance. There's nothing that enables us to merit. It's just a recognition that God has come in the person of Jesus. We are in need of someone who will save us. And we believe that Jesus is the one who has come to save us by faith alone. Are we saved? And the fascinating thing, though, Jesus doesn't talk about it here. Paul elaborates later on in saying those who have that faith, the only reason you have that faith is because God loved you in the first place and he gave that to you. It's a gift that comes from God. We don't figure it out because some of are smarter than others. And so if you are here wondering whether or not you are loved by God, here is a way to ask yourself an inventory. Do you love Jesus? Do you believe that he has come from God the Father? to give himself as our atoning sacrifice. If that is what you believe, if you would say, that's my only hope, the only reason you do believe that is because God has already loved you, and Jesus says, and that's the only qualification. The Father loves you. And it's vitally important that we understand that it's not just about what we know, but the Father loves us already. 
Because as one commentator, Frederick Dale Bruner, points out, he says, Jesus wants us to know his Father's love, lest we think Jesus' reconciling work made an already angry with sin God into a reluctantly loving the world Father. And what Bruner is pointing out is it would be very easy for us to be thinking about God who is angry about the fact that we had sinned and rebelled against him and made a mess of the beauty of the world that he created. And then we may recognize that he sent Jesus to pay the price, which was his own life, but then sit back and think, well, wouldn't that make God even just kind of angrier? And then if you're a theological, you would then bring in the promises and realize, okay, but that was necessary because that was the price that had to be paid. Only God could bail us out of the mess that we've made. So Jesus agreed to do this, and he came. And so God has said that he's going to love the people who do that, but, you know, in the image of my mind, not any from my own experience, but from just an image in my mind, just want to clarify not from my own experience, is that of an unwanted new son-in-law. Now, I could have had that, but I didn't have that experience. In other words, all right, we didn't want him in the family, but our daughter loved him, so we'll take him. Yeah, we love him. You just feel the... It'd be very easy for us to think of that's the way that we relate to God. We're in the family, but does he really love us, or is he just kind of going through the motions of love us? It was love of God that compelled him to send Jesus to begin with. It's the love of God that enabled you to believe the qualifications. Do you love Jesus? And do you believe that he is the one who the Father has sent? And we rest in that assurance. John picks up in his own epistles later on, and he writes this in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. The next chapter in 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And later in John 4, 1 John 4, verse 19, John says this, we love because God first loved us. And fascinatingly is the love of God is the truth that we cling to, to have peace in all of our circumstances. Because the love of God was demonstrated in the person of Jesus, who came to a people who didn't love him and died for us. And opening our eyes, we see what love is and we respond to love with love. Not only love of the one who loved us, but in an amazing way, he enables us to love one another and love as he loves, which is to love the unlovely. But there's another fascinating point to which we have here, another ingredient that Jesus brings in, and all of these ingredients really go together and, uh, and in inseparable ways, and that is grace. And we see that most evident in the last two verses here. The disciples had already said, yeah, now you're speaking clearly, and because you've anticipated our questions, which tells us that you must be from God, now we believe. And Jesus says, okay, so now you believe? And he points out what's going to happen over these next few hours. In verse 32, he says this, Behold, the hour is coming, 
indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. What he's speaking about is what's, the heat comes in a few hours. When the soldiers come in to arrest Jesus, after the initial pushback, fighting back, to protect their friend. After Jesus was taken out and they realized that he didn't fight back, he had lost. He was now in the hands of those who hated him, who had intended to kill him for some time. He was most certainly going to die. Their response, every one of them, was to run away, to leave him alone, and in some cases to verbally deny that they even knew him. Their actions all spoke what Peter's words said. And Jesus was well aware of this. And yet, he's using these words. He's using their failures that they didn't even know they were going to participate in to give them reason for hope. They think they have it figured out. Now we believe. Now we are ready. Now things will get moving. but they didn't even know themselves. And as we look at this picture, we are reminded of this. There can be no peace apart from grace. We have to be honest with ourselves because every one of us desires peace. But here's our problem. None of us deserves peace. The only person in history who has ever deserved peace is Jesus Christ, who has come and who was perfect in every way. And yet on the cross he gave up the peace that he deserves so that you and I can experience a peace that we will never deserve. And the question that we must ask ourselves and regularly remind ourselves of the answer is this, so how do we receive that peace? And the answer is simply this, by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation as he is offered in the gospel. See, Jesus is the love of God who has come in the flesh. That is the truth. And that truth is the objective reality of our peace. Jesus loved us even when we were failures, as he points out to his disciples, because he loved us first not because we measure up. That's grace giving what we do not deserve. And yet it is the essence of love to give to someone what they do not deserve, to pay all of their debt, even when they hate you. To have an affection for them, for us, when we couldn't care less. We see grace and love and truth mingle together, which is not only our salvation, it is the reality that brings peace when we remind ourselves of it, whatever our circumstance.
we look at this passage and we see what we already know. The world is not as it should be. The headlines may be disturbing. Our own experiences may be unsettling. But here is the truth of God's love and grace. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, has overcome the world. He died paying the world's penalty. He rose, defeating and showing his authority over it. He, therefore, is our peace. We experience it by believing and believing and believing in him. Father, we thank you for such a profound and in some ways simple message and yet one that is so rich of implications that we will never master it. But I do pray you would not only grant us the faith to receive the benefit of the promise, but a hunger to fathom its depths that we might have the joys as more and more truths are revealed to us by your Spirit. May Jesus be the object of our affection and of all of our attentions, the reason for our living, and the one to whom we give thanks for every blessing. For in him, and in him alone, the rock of our salvation, do we find the joy, the hope, and the peace that you promise to those who are yours. All glory be to you, our Lord. Through Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing our song of dismissal.